We gather again this morning, the first day of spring come and gone. We revel in the sight of budding trees, the promise of cherry blossoms. We air out rooms, dusting and cleaning and preparing ourselves to start anew. Now, let us pause, grateful for our time together and for the music that floats gently on the air, bringing with it the hope of yet more beauty, the expectation of joy that awaits. My political career as an ardent feminist began when I was eight years old on a trip to Washington, D.C. My best friend and I joined our mothers, both professors at a small women's college in upstate New York, on the eight-hour bus ride to march for the Equal Rights Amendment and Freedom of Choice. We all wore white in harmony and memory of the original suffragettes, And I remember walking along with all those women, waving the college's banner and being so proud. The bus went back overnight, and the next morning, my mother, never one to let politics get in the way of an education, packed me off to school, bleary-eyed and sleepy, but with full of a newfound love of marches, rallies, and anything with rows and rows of cheering women. I enhanced my women's movement credentials then at my all-girls middle school and high school. The latter, Emma Willard School, is actually the oldest girls' school in the country and was the site of one of Carol Gilligan's famous studies on how girls learn. I did go to a co-ed college, but I clung tight to Jane Austen and George Eliot. And I never gave up listening to Ani DeFranco. I wrote about feminism for the school paper and how we needed to keep fighting for what our mothers had started. I graduated and moved down here to D.C., where I could go to all the marches I wanted, and where I loved to carry around my knitting in a Ms. Magazine tote bag. Almost as much as women's movements, women's company has always been important to me. I tend to gravitate to all female gatherings, whether it's craft circles or discussion groups. My husband has been sent off not a few times to entertain himself while I host teas, and my mother and I almost always plan a girl's day out when I'm home. When I was pregnant, I remember how shocked my friends were that I came right out and said I hoped it would be a girl. Of course, I would have adored a boy and probably sworn up and down that I'd never mentioned a girl at all. But the truth is, I wanted a relationship with a daughter, wanted the chance to know what that was like from the other side, having enjoyed so much growing up as a daughter, growing up a girl and becoming a woman. And I almost forgot the best part. My birthday is Women's Equality Day, August 26th, the day when the 19th Amendment was ratified and women were given the right to vote. In 11 years, when we mark the 100th anniversary of the amendment's passage, I'm expecting a heck of a birthday party. (laughs) 
So I hope I have convinced you of my qualifications for speaking today about women, about women's place in history, and about what the whole idea of womanhood means. Or at any rate, what it means now. Because like any idea, it has undergone radical transformations over time. Women have been seen as caretakers, as saints, as sinners, but always as different, somehow distinct. And often, of course, as less than, not quite as capable, not suited for the same positions or roles. I was curious then, when I first began to explore ethical culture, to find out more about the history of women in the movement. And so was my mother, apparently, since almost immediately on finding out that I would be making my way here to the Washington Ethical Society, she found a platform online about women in ethical culture and sent it speeding my way through the wonder of email. This particular platform was given in 2000 by Jean Somerville Kotkin, a leader at the New York Society for Ethical Culture, and it was really a wonderful collection of information about all the women who have been leaders or speakers or, as Kotkin puts it, the movers, shakers, doers. Kotkin goes through the history of ethical culture women from Anna Garland Spencer, who our children have studied recently for her work against child labor. You remember their pleas for fair trade chocolate. To Martha Ellis Fischel, the first woman president of the American Ethical Union, in 1926. But Kotkin's platform also explores the slightly less, we'll say the less exemplary side of the women's history in ethical culture. Felix Adler, who founded the movement in 1876, was a pioneer in many ways, but women's rights was not exactly one of them. In fact, it wasn't until after his death that women could become full leaders in the movement. Anna Garland Spencer, for all her training and work and abilities, was only an associate leader, and I am sorry to say that Kotkin quotes Adler as disliking Spencer's unwomanly strength. I like to think, though, that Adler just needed a little more time, a little more exposure to women in leadership positions. He saw radical changes in the social structure of America over his lifetime, just as almost every generation has seen changes, shifts in how we understand a woman's place. There are always those boundary pushers, the women, like Spencer, who did it first, stepped out alone, created a place for themselves where they saw a need and a possibility. And sometimes it takes our distinguished gentlemen, and in fact other women too, a little time to catch up. Well, I want to challenge us not to play just catch up, but rather to look at our own times and see who the boundary pushers are today, what challenges and opportunities are facing women now. When I wrote that article in college about feminism, it was in response to the sentiment I heard around me, the idea that feminism was either dead or irrelevant. There we all were, happily ensconced in our ivory tower, and certainly holding our own with the men. Surely our mother's and grandmother's dreams were fulfilled. I argued then, and argue still, that equality is far from being reached, when our rep elected representatives are overwhelmingly male, 
when women, and especially mothers of young children, are hired less often and paid less well than men still. When childcare itself is expensive and maternity leave is by no means guaranteed. And certainly, especially, when women in other countries look at all of those facts and figures and wish they had those problems. When there are regimes, regimes and religions that feel that women must take a backseat, and when economics and politics and culture all conspire to keep women out of positions of power and under men's careful watch, well, until those times are over, my friends, I say feminism should be, must be, alive and well and necessary. All right, well, I have a sneaking suspicion that I may be, as they say, preaching to the choir here. So I'd like to turn now to another aspect of gender, and specifically womanhood, that is maybe a little more challenging for some, certainly more interesting to me. Both the American Ethical Union and the Unitarian Universalist Association, our two national associations, have been strong supporters of lesbian, gay, and bisexual rights for years, as has this congregation, performing same-sex wedding ceremonies long before the days when they were aired on soap operas. First same-sex wedding on daytime television was this February on All My Children. <laughs> Bet you didn't know that. I didn't. And indeed, I think, I hope, we are beginning to see a sea change in America, that younger generations are turning away from the bigotry and homophobia that we have seen and moving toward an understanding of the basic rights of all people. We have experienced some setbacks as defensive marriage acts passed in a number of states, but we have made remarkable progress forward in the last few years too. And I do believe that in the coming years we will continue the march toward equality and civil rights. One sign of that march, I think, that march forward, is the expansion of people we are trying to support as equal. When I was growing up, we, and by we, I mean your garden variety liberal group, talked about gay folks or maybe gays and lesbians. Somewhere in high school, that was expanded to include bisexuals, so we were up to LGB. When I was in college, I became familiar with the Q part of the initials, which stands for either queer or questioning, but generally represents an attempt to draw the circle a little wider still. Now, though, I almost always say LGBTQ, and it's the T that I want to talk about today. That, or we could have a conversation about why we in America seem to be so into initials for everything. But I think that transgender rights and issues are more interesting. First, I want to spend just a little bit of time on definitions, because I think there's sometimes confusion about what words like transvestite, transsexual, transgendered really mean. Today, I'm talking about people who are born physically as one sex, but who identify more strongly as the other sex. Some transgendered people choose to take hormones or have surgery so that they can change their basic physical attributes. Some choose to simply dress, wear their hair, or otherwise outwardly identify with the gender that they feel inwardly. And some people, also usually covered under the transgendered umbrella, 
consider themselves to have identification with both or neither gender, and ask us to reconsider whether the binary gender system, male and female and that's the end of the story, really makes sense. And that is where I think it gets interesting. Because as someone who has always identified strongly as a woman and with the women's movement and women's circles and women's company, I'm intrigued by the idea that my understanding of womanhood or even the concept of woman might be no more than a social construct, another way of dividing people up rather than a biological fact. When I find something that challenges my way of thinking, like the idea of a more fluid sense of gender, I try to learn more, to have conversations, read articles, see if I can probe a little more deeply into the possibilities. And that's what I've been doing over the last few years, really, as I've begun to understand more about people who identify as transgendered. And America has been doing the same thing. There was the movie Trans America, which explored the relationship between a biological man who was transitioning to becoming a woman and her son. A few years earlier than that, we had the heartbreaking Boys Don't Cry. And then this past year, the real-life drama, which perhaps mixed some gender issues with the absurdity of fame, with the pregnant man who appeared in People magazine and on The Oprah Winfrey Show. This was a person who was born a biological female, had transitioned to male, and was living with his female partner, but she wasn't able to have children. Since he still had female reproductive organs, he chose to bear the couple's children. I was a little uncomfortable with some of the media circus surrounding him and his choice, much of which he seemed to welcome, the media circus part, I mean. But in the end, I was also just excited that America was actually having a conversation about gender issues, about what makes someone a woman or a man. Other cultures have long been addressing the issue of individuals who don't fit neatly into one of the two gender categories we like to think exist. Much of the Indian subcontinent recognizes a third gender, as do a number of Native American peoples. And ancient sources, I thought this was so interesting, like the Code of Hammurabi, refer to the existence of a third gender. In the Code, it's people who appeared female but had male characteristics. And gives them, for instance, inheritance rights that most more closely align with those accorded to males in that culture. Indeed, third-gendered people often seem to appear in cultures with strongly defined male and female roles, and frequently those in the third gender are allowed to play with those roles, to take on rights accorded to only one gender or to cross borders, usually kept tight. I'm not suggesting by any means that third gendered people in cultures that recognize them have it easy, but simply to say that world cultures have been struggling with the idea of the binary gender system and the folks that don't quite fit into that system for some time. And that's not even taking into account people that are born with biologically unclear gender because of prenatal development or genetic variations. My point here is that the neat little categories that we try to create, the schoolbook understanding of a man and a woman and nothing in between, 
is challenged the world over. So where does that leave me with my Ms. Magazine bag full of knitting and my all-girls high school? That second piece about single-sex education is of particular interest to me. There was an article in the New York Times a few years ago about the increasing number of trans men, that is, biologically born women who were transitioning or had transitioned to being men, but who choose to hang on to some aspect of that transition by identifying not solely as men, so using the term trans men. The increasing number at women's colleges. Often these folks had begun at the college before transition and were navigating the twists and turns of transition while in school. At first, I was surprised that someone who was transitioning or who had transitioned to primarily male would want to be at a women's school. And honestly, I wasn't sure what I thought about it. I had so valued being in an all-women's environment, and still do, would that environment be changed by the presence of someone whose experience as a woman was part of their historical past, not their present or their future? In another article, I came across the idea that women's schools have always been a place where the idea of gender is challenged, where, for instance, a woman's role as solely wife and mother in the 19th century was tested and rejected. And so they are a logical place for the unfolding conversation about gender identity. Later, I had a conversation with a colleague who had been born or assigned, which is sometimes the terminology used, female and now lives as a man. He shared how he had loved going to a certain women's only music festival before he transitioned, and that now that he identified as male, he had decided that that festival was something he needed to give up. Just as it had been a safe and supportive environment for him when he was questioning his gender, so he wanted to keep it a safe and supportive environment now, which meant for him that it needed to remain women only. I'm still thinking about these issues, still find them fascinating, thinking about what it means for me and my identification as a woman. We are so quick to categorize people, to fit them into boxes, and we so much want those boxes to be real, to know that our categorizations are right. When what all this thinking about gender has done for me, ultimately, is to help me realize that boxes and categories never define the totality of a person, even when we seem to fit in as neatly as can be. Personal identification with one category or another can be important for us, can give us a sense of who we are. But we run into dangerous ground, I think, when we let it be the final word for ourselves and for each other. We are all more complicated than any system, binary or otherwise, can explain. There are two principles in the ethical culture movement that speak to me most strongly, that encompass what I would call my faith. One is the unalterable, undeniable, and precious worth of each person. And even more, the unique worth. The idea that no one of us is replaceable. That we each hold a particular place in the world, unlike any other person. 
The other complementary principle is the idea that we are deeply connected to each other, that our ties to each other are inescapable and just as precious as our individuality, so that somehow we are like every other person, even while we are uniquely ourselves. What these principles, this faith, tells me is that while I might enjoy the intellectual exercise of thinking about and in discussing and investigating gender, in the end, it's the person in front of me, not their gender or their color or their nationality or their sexual orientation, but the person themselves that I am asked to encounter, to respect, to experience, to love. All of the categories we place on ourselves or we find ourselves placed in are useful only insofar as they help us to understand ourselves. And after that, they become just labels, just so many words. Our task as ethical culturists, as ethical agents, is to look into another's eyes and to see not categories, but a fellow human being. Binary systems, my friends, are for computers. Let's all just be human together. Margaret Fuller was a transcendentalist, journalist, and women's rights advocate of the mid-19th century, and someone who bended the roles assigned to her gender at the time. As you hear her words, I invite you to imagine what she might have called us to where she's speaking today. A new manifestation is at hand, a new hour is come. When man and woman may regard one another as brother and sister, able both to appreciate and to prophesy to one another. A new manifestation is at hand, a new hour is come. What woman needs is not as a woman to act or rule, but as a nature to grow, as an intelligence to discern, as a soul to live freely and unimpeded, to unfold such powers as were given her. A new manifestation is at hand, a new hour is come. Man does not have his fair share either. His energies are repressed and distorted by the interposition of artificial obstacles. A new manifestation is at hand, a new hour is come. We would have every arbitrary barrier thrown down. We would have every path laid open to woman as freely as to man. Were this done, we believe a divine energy would pervade nature to a degree unknown in the history of former ages. A new manifestation is at hand. A new hour is come.